Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Please rise for the reading of God's word. (laughs) Beginning in Luke 4, verse 1, we're going to read up through the first 13 verses. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along using the screens to my right and to my left. If you don't have a Bible at all, speak to one of the pastors and we'd be happy to help you. Beginning in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen? Please be seated. Father, we pray as we study your word today, you help us to understand your word. You illuminate the eyes of our hearts. I pray not only do we hear your word, but we listen to it. Not only are we informed, but we're transformed continually by the power of scripture. We pray a blessing on our time together. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. One of the things that you have to immediately address when we come to a passage like this is one of the main characters of this passage is Satan. (laughs) If you're new, that might be a little bit weird to you. Bear with me for a few moments. Christians believe that Satan is real. We believe that he's active. We believe that he possesses some power, but by no means all power. But we tend to fall into one of two extremes when it comes to belief in Satan. One is that we sort of, as if we're naturalists, act like or kind of believe that Satan doesn't really even exist at all. We don't think about him. We don't worry about him. He's primarily just an illustration or an analogy for evil in the Bible. And that's not an acceptable view for Christians to have. The Bible teaches in a real, literal Satan. The other view, the other extreme, is a complete and utter over-fascination with Satan, resulting in a great deal of fear and panic. Some of you guys might have some family members that fall into this category. Always afraid that the devil is going to get you. Anybody here afraid the devil's going to get them? No one wants to raise their hand. 
There's some truth there. Some people are afraid of that. I think we associate Satanism with like occult practices and sacrificing goats and pentagrams and stuff like that. People occasionally send me reels about Taylor Swift, that she's secretly like a Satanist, mouthing words on the side of the football field, casting a spell on whatever team she doesn't like. I'm in the category of knew who Taylor Swift was before the other guy, Travis something. I don't think the substance of Satanism is like this sort of flavor, these themes we put on it, the little things. I think the substance of, of Satanism is uh, essentially opposition to God and opposition to the truth. So most of us think that we're safe from acting satanically because we don't have pentagrams in our room, I hope, <laughs> because we don't sacrifice goats and we don't go into the wilderness and perform various occult rituals. But if we do things in our life on a regular basis, if we give in to the temptation of opposing God in various ways, that is, in a sense, acting satanically. And so now we arrive at this passage. And if you were here last week, you remember probably two things. One is baptism. The other is a long list of names. Who remembers that? You guys memorizing this last week? Oh, you didn't? Okay. Well, now the sermon's 20 minutes longer. You might remember the baptism of Jesus. At that moment, the Father speaks from heaven, which is a rare occurrence in the Bible and in the New Testament. Like, God speaks first person, and he says to God the Son, you are my beloved, what? Son. In you, I am well pleased. It is a supernatural high moment in the narrative of the gospel. Heaven literally opens up. People who are there see this, and they are certainly amazed. They're impressed. It's significant. It's spiritual. It's divine. It's holy. And then we get a long list of names. And although those names might be easy to skip past, they show for us God's sovereign direction of human marriages and human affairs and human births to lead to such a time when Jesus would be born at the right place and the right time to the correct parents in the right family line. And even in that genealogy at the very end, we learn that Jesus is a son, a son, a son, a son of Adam, who is a son of God. In both of these situations, both the baptism and the genealogy, Jesus is described to us as a son of God. And we know from the rest of the Old New Testament, and we know from the letters and other places in the gospel, that this sonship of Jesus is unique, and it's divine, and it is unlike other places in the Bible where we have sons of God. Because theologically, the context is this. We're like two-thirds of the way through the Bible, and there have already been two important sons of God. The first son is Adam. You remember Adam? I'll give you a second. I'm going to take a break. You guys want to take a break? The first son is Adam. Adam God creates Adam in his own image. He gives him Eve as a helper. These two humans together, they are to represent God to the rest of creation and to obey the Lord and to cultivate the garden. They're given various tasks to do. They live in a world that's good. There's no problems with that world. And then they are also, like Jesus is in our passage, tempted by Satan. They disobey God. And when they do that, sin and suffering and death enter into the world. And the first son of God in the text, he fails in his calling and in his vocation. And the relationship that human beings had to God was broken. Then there's another story 
of a son of God. In this case, it's a nation. What nation is that? Great job. Israel uh, begins with the person of Abraham that essentially leads to Jacob who changes his name. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. He has 12 sons. They're in Egypt after a while. They become a nation. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're rescued by God. Eventually, they're given a kingdom. And although the story of Israel has highs and lows and successes and failures and moral uprightness and wickedness, it ends, at least in the Old Testament, on a hard note. The northern kingdoms are completely destroyed or essentially destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdoms are taken into exile by the Babylonians. And although the Old Testament ends with them returning to the land, they have not yet returned to their former glory. Israel was meant to be a priestly nation to convey truths about God to the rest of the nations, anyone who wasn't an Israelite. They were supposed to be sons of God in that sense, and they weren't. And so we've gotten through much of the Bible, and human beings have failed to be proper sons of God. And now Jesus is called from heaven and through a genealogy, the Son of God. And we know that this Jesus is the unique and special divine Son of God. And so we have a battle. Will Jesus succumb? Will he fail the very same temptations that humanity has experienced before him. And so Jesus is sent out into the desolate place, into the wilderness. And we're reminded that Jesus, although he is fully God, is also fully human. And so as he doesn't eat, he has become hungry. The wilderness is not safe. There's not a supply of food, not easy supply of water. He's alone, he's away from people, no easy medical care. This would not have been an easy situation for him to have been in. It's difficult and it's dangerous. And in the case of Jesus, it's many, many days. And most of us, I don't think, have experienced an actual, real, physical desolation out in the wilderness. Where we're worried about where our next meal will come from. Maybe, maybe some of us have. But all of us have probably been in a season of life where things are not well. Is that true for some of you? Some of you are like, never had a bad season. Just back-to-back great years. <laughs> You've experienced, uh, whether that be spiritual or emotional or social desolation. Maybe you've experienced financial or physical desolation that you've been unhealthy. And so we get the story of Jesus going out into the wilderness. And Satan tempts him for these 40 days. And he's hungry and he's at a low point physically. And then to understand this passage well... I think to get the most out of it, it helps us to look at another passage where we read about Jesus as one who is tempted. The author of the letter to the Hebrews says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think one way to look at this passage is to see that Jesus is a victor, that he's righteous, that he does not succumb to temptation and is therefore worthy of worship. Part of what this passage in Hebrews is saying is that, that Jesus was tempted like us in every way, yet he was without sin. All of us have fallen to temptation. Jesus never did. Another way to read this passage is to understand that because Jesus 
carried out his vocation of righteousness perfectly. That he never gave in to the devil, never gave in to temptation. He was able to go to a cross and pay for sin and becomes for us a means of rescue. That it wasn't just that Jesus is a righteous example, that he is a rescuer. That because he was sinless, he was able to carry out the mission the Father laid out for him. And then Hebrews says this one other thing that I think is so helpful for us. How many of you, in times of need, have been tempted to sin? Anybody? We're like, how do we not sin? Tells us to approach the throne of grace to receive what we need in our times of need. That Jesus himself becomes a resource for us not to sin. So this passage is also an encouragement. We learn a number of things about us and about Jesus. And the first is this. We learn about trusting God's provision. We learn about trusting God's provision. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. We have this word if in the text here. You guys see that word if? One person in the front saw that word if. That word if means a number of things. I think actually a better translation in uh, this paragraph based upon the construction of the words is since, not if. Satan is saying since you are the son of God. The reason for that is I, I, I think grammatically that's actually what it means. But more than that, I don't think that Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove or disprove his unique sonship. I don't think Satan is omniscient. Do you guys know that? Satan doesn't know everything. Like God knows everything. Satan does not know everything. Satan probably knows some stuff. I think he's aware of Jesus' unique position. I think he's aware that Jesus has something important to play out in the salvific plan of God. I'm not sure how much he knows. I know that when the demons meet Jesus in the text, they tend to know a little bit more about Jesus than even his own disciples do. They call him things like the Holy One of God. But do they know all the specifics? Do they know God's plan of substitution? Do they know how important the cross would be to Jesus' ministry? Probably not. I don't think that these temptations are about proving identity. I think they're about proving fidelity. Not are you the son of God, but what kind of God or son of God will you be? Will you remain faithful to what God has called you to do or will you not? Will you prioritize your own comfort and success and happiness and joy or will you not? Will you prioritize the mission that God has called you to? And so Jesus has been fasting. How many of you have been fasting? How many of you have fasted? You're not supposed to tell me. That was a test. We fast because what we're trying to do is communicate, I think to ourselves primarily and, and to others, that our sustenance, what we need, is God himself. That food is good, but what we need most is God. That time with family that might be recreational is good, but what we, know, we need most is God. That the primary source of all the good things that we do have are God. It puts things that we love in their proper place. Food is good, and family is good, and recreational time is good, and whatever things you might be fasting, they're probably good. However, they are not as good as God, and they're better when God is in his rightful place as the means and resource of all the things that we actually need. 
When Jesus is fasting as well, he's saying, what I need most, my actual resource, my actual provision is God. God is the one who sustains me, who guards me, who protects me, who delivers me. And so I think that Satan is tempting Jesus when it comes to provision. Have anyone here ever doubted God's provision for them? A few of you, okay. Some people have. I have. And when I doubt God's provision, I'm usually doubting one of two things. Maybe I'm doubting his power. Is God able to actually give me the thing that I think I need? More likely, I'm probably doubting God's love. If God really loved me, he would give me such and such a thing. Has that thought ever gone through any of your brains? If God really loved me, he would give me this thing that I love so much. This story, this section is taking us back to the story of the Israelites. They're delivered by God from Egypt. He sends 10 plagues against the Egyptian. It's big, it's miraculous, it's supernatural. He parts a sea and the Israelites walk through it. Then he closes that sea on the Egyptians who are pursuing them. He takes them out in the wilderness. He's going to give them the law and the way that they should live. He's present with them as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He's worked miraculously and wondrously and amazingly and powerfully and undeniably. And they get out into the wilderness and they say, we're hungry. Parents, that sound familiar? We're hungry. And they say it would have been better just to stay in Egypt. After God had done all these amazing things. And so the Lord, even though that they are not trusting him, what does God provide for them? Manna. He provides for them manna. This this sustenance that's available in the morning, and he tells the Israelites, you go out and you collect it in the morning, take only what you need for the day, each day. And what do they do? They treat manna like toilet paper at the beginning of COVID. Like, they, they go hard, right? They collect way more manna than they need. They bring it to their houses. What happens to the manna that's left over? It rots. God will not allow them to secure their own future apart from his provision. He will not allow them to do that. And then on Friday, he says, collect manna for two days and don't even go out on Saturday. And what happens Saturday? People go out looking for manna. God has communicated to them, listen, I'm going to give you enough. I'm going to give you what you need for each day. And you're going to trust me every single day for the provision of your life. You're not going to plan ahead. You're not going to stockpile. You're going to be forced to trust me every single day and take what I have given to you. I think what's helpful for me to remember as I think about ways in which I wish God would provide for me or I feel like God hasn't provided for me is to think about all the ways that he's provided for me in the past. Have you ever exercised that? Have you ever done that exercise? You begin to make a list. Here's all the things that God has given me. And you're like, ah, uh, he's given me this, and he's given me this, and it's big, and it's amazing, and these are going to heal me in this way. And you're like, but I really do need like a 30 more bucks a week. So if like God could do that, <laughs> it helps uh, provide perspective for your problems. I also think when we're in periods of a lack of provision, when we don't have what we think we need, when we're looking about the future, do you ever do this thing where you think about your future problems more than your present problems? You're like, I'm okay right now, but there is a day where I might not be okay. And then when things aren't okay, you're like, it's only possibly going to get worse. Anyone think that? Philip, remember, like, Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. Like, he goes there because God sends him there. 
that he's not in the wilderness by accident, that he's there on purpose, that he's going the way that he's supposed to go. Today we use Google Maps. We used to use things like Thomas Guides. You remember Thomas Guides? <laughs> Notice that only people over a certain age laugh about Thomas Guides. <laughs> you ever get sent somewhere by Google and it's like, turn left, and you're like, that can't be right. And we trust things like Google and we trust like Yahoo Maps or whatever we used. And eventually a lot of these places, they they take us to the right place. I think there's a sense in like, part of what Jesus is doing here is he's trusting the Father even though he cannot see the future provision. Like he just believes that he will be provided for. He is able actually to turn stones into bread. But that's not what he's called to right now. He's called to trust on the provision and the direction of the Father. And in your life and in my life, when I think about all the ways that I want God to provide for me or worry that he won't provide in the future, I think about all the various scenarios in which things go bad for me. I'm sure, I'm sure some of you do as well. Remember, I'm called to trust God even when future or present provision is invisible to me. And what Jesus says is that man does not live on what? Bread alone. Jesus remembers what God has said. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy where God is teaching the second generation not to make the same mistakes that the first generation. He's actually talking about the manna here. In Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but let man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is easy to trust God when you're being provided for. It's harder when you can't see that provision. That could mean lots of things, right? For some of us, it might mean just actual food on our tables. For some of us, it might mean that we're waiting for a spouse. We want a spouse or we want children. Maybe some of us are struggling in our friendships and our relationships and we feel alone and left out. Maybe some of us are concerned about the future of our kids. Maybe some of us are unhealthy or sick and need healing. And all of these are opportunities for you to be tempted by the devil or to trust in God's provision. Here's why um, I think it's so important. I think we have, a, we have a history of seeing God provide for his people. You've heard of uh, the Apostle Paul? Good. Good. He wrote 13 books that are important for us. He wrote all 13. He had a hard life in many ways. He goes out and he evangelizes and he tells people about Jesus and he gets beaten and he gets stoned. He gets on ships and those ships just are sinking left and right. He says this in a letter that he wrote from prison, prison with conditions far worse than what we have today likely. My God will, what? Supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think I'm able to say to you that God will provide you everything you need. I I think I'm able to say that. I think I'm able to say that because he has already provided everything you need through his work at the cross, through his substitutionary atonement, through the forgiveness made available to you through his work, not here just in temptation, but years later on a cross. You actually have everything you need. Everything else is great, but what you actually need is rescue. That Jesus, I think, 
most importantly does not abstain from making bread, Jesus most importantly becomes himself bread for us to eat. I think it's one of the reasons why we take communion the way we do, to remind us that our provision is Christ. So we trust in God's provision. We trust also in God's purpose. Let's read verses 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Satan uh, shows Jesus in probably some sort of vision all of the kingdoms at once, it says. And I think the nuance of the implication here is not just the Roman Empire, not just empires present at the time of Jesus' life, but all the heights of human collective power. I think it's not unlikely that Jesus saw also the Ottoman Empire and the Mongolian Empire and American Empire and British Empire and all the ways that humans have collectively exerted force, have built large cultures and cities, have had great cultural influence, have had military machines. Jesus here, I think, in all of human history has seen every high throne. And Satan says to Jesus, you can have all of it if you just worship me. I think one of the questions we have is like, is this, is this a real, this is a real offer Satan is making? On the one hand, we might say something like, yes, we can read this in 2 Corinthians where, where, where Paul is talking about Satan. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a sense in which certain systems and certain parts of human power have been handed over to Satan. However, I think it should be clear that whatever power Satan might be able to give Jesus is at the sort of pleasure and, and disposition of Satan, and also it's temporary. And the cost for Jesus is what? He must what? Worship Satan. It makes, I think, all readers of this passage go back to Exodus 32, God's delivered his people, he's provided for his people, he's given them manna, he's given them water, he's present with them, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. Moses goes up on the mountain, he's communing with God, he's learning from God how the people are supposed to live and behave, and here's what happens while he's gone. People saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow 
shall be the feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I think when we read that passage, we're like, how could you possibly? How could you possibly? God worked for you so clearly and so marvelously, so supernaturally, so tangibly, so undeniably. And Moses is gone for like a little bit too long. And you abandon the God who brought you out of Egypt. And you say, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. It is the allure of idolatry. The allure of idolatry. I actually think idolatry is as dangerous today as it was then. We are susceptible to it as they were then. We see that and it's so obvious to us, right? I don't expect any of you go home and by Wednesday, because you've forgotten about church, start fashioning idols out of like tin foil in your house. If you are, please come see me afterwards. But I don't imagine that's a temptation for you, right? You don't need that to feel the desire of your heart to worship, to, to, to be satisfied. That's not how it works for most of us. We center our lives around something else. Let me try and illustrate this. Um, almost everyone here at some point in their life has gone on some, some sort of special diet. Is that right? No one was like, no, I never have. Yes, most of us have, right? Whether you've told people about it or not, you've tried various diets and you're trying to make your body look a certain way or achieve a certain level of health or drop weight or gain muscle or whatever. You've gone on a special diet. Your special diet, you know what it will always include every single time, 100% of the time? Food. <laughs> Food. If I said to you, I'm going on a diet, and you're like, what's the diet? The diet is not eating. You'd be like, well, that's, that's not right. Like, no, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm going to refuse to eat. You're like, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to eat something. I'm like, well, right, well, what can I eat? Eggs are not okay now, right? Can I eat yogurt? I don't know. Now vegetables are poisonous. Like, it's so confusing to me. I'm just not going to eat anything. Everyone who saw that would think, that's ridiculous. Human beings have to eat. You can't not eat. No matter what diet you go on, it will always include food. Okay, in the same way, I think humans are designed this way. You will worship something. No matter what. Whether you know it or not, whether you can describe clearly what it is, your life will center around something. Your life will be defined by something. It will be influenced by something. There's something out there that's the most important thing to you that you think the most about. I think if you do not worship God, you will worship something else. So then we see the Israelites. Moses is gone for I don't know how long. They can't take it anymore. They make idols. And so we think that's crazy. But I wonder if we were to examine our own hearts and think seriously about what we most love and care about what excites our imagination the most, what we devote the most of our time to, what defines our life, we might find that a lot of us have cheaply and quickly made idols. The substance of this particular temptation actually, to my mind, is not so much the idolatry. The idolatry is the cost of the temptation. The temptation, I think, for Jesus is to take a crown without a cross, to bypass the suffering the Lord had called him to, and achieve the power that would come at the end of his ministry. And I think this would have been appealing to those who are reading this message. Those who are reading the gospel for the first time. The Jews are under the oppression of the Romans. They've been passed from one foreign power to the next. 
politically and governmentally. It is not going well for them. I think they're waiting for a Messiah to deliver them from Caesar or any other pagan power. I think we know this because of other places in the gospel. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples and he's asking them, who do you think I am? And they say, you're this guy, you're this guy. And, and eventually they, they say, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, you're correct. And then we read this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Here we go, Peter. Bold Peter. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Just as a pause there, a quick application. Don't do what Peter did there. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Look, get behind me. Who? Satan. Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There would be no salvation without the cross. There would be no rescue without the cross. Jesus does deserve power. Jesus will come back in power. Jesus will rule in a way distinct from the way that he's ruling now. But his first mission was not a mission of power. It was a mission of persecution. It was not a mission of strength. It was a mission of suffering. He came to die. You look at this, like this temptation uh, to avoid the suffering kind of extends throughout the entire Gospel of Luke. In Luke 23, when your kids are grown, we'll get there. Luke 23, he's on the cross. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a wonderful passage where one criminal is like, if you are the son of God, get us out of here. Maybe he's making fun of him. Maybe he's mocking him. And the other criminal says, no, 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 we are getting what we deserve. But this guy isn't. He's innocent. He's done nothing that should have put him on a cross. And then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What level of confidence do you have when you're being executed next to somebody and you say, when you come into your kingdom, remember me? Purpose of Jesus' mission was not first to take power. The purpose of Jesus' mission was first to go to the cross. So coming to, to, the, to the devil's temptation here to have all power from him, would have bypassed the cross. It would have derailed Jesus' mission. I think when I look at this passage and I think about God's purpose of the cross, the question I want to ask myself and I want to ask other people is this. How central is the cross to your understanding of your faith? How central is the cross to your theology or to your understanding of Jesus? Is the cross absolutely necessary for your belief system? I'm thankful many of you say yes. I suspect there are some of us for which that answer would be no. Maybe not like knowingly, but maybe the predominantly thing that we want out of our faith is just to be good people. The cross is not required for you to learn how to be moral. Maybe it's to be successful 
or wealthy or blessed, the cross is not required for material blessing. This is why there are lots of versions of Christianity that will say things like, Jesus came to teach us how to live a certain life, or they'll say, Jesus came to bless us materially, or Jesus came to teach us how to love others well. And I think there's elements of truth to all those things, but that's the center of your theology. It's a crossless theology, and it has no power to save you whatsoever. Like, the substance of Jesus' mission is this. Like, we we were at the beginning. Adam sinned. And in Adam, all have sinned. And so God is just, and he's not going to let sin slide. He's going to exact wrath against sinners. Everyone was like, ah, that seems like a bit much. You love justice. I assure you, you love justice. If a drunk driver runs over a three-year-old, you want him to receive justice. We just don't like justice when it's directed towards us or the people we love. So it's like the bad news of the gospel. Human beings are guilty before a holy God, can't stand before him. The wrath of God is meant to be poured out on sinners. And the good news is what we read in passages like this, that Jesus becomes man. God the Son becomes the Son of God. He takes on flesh. He lives a perfect life, never succumbs to temptation. He goes to the cross, and at the cross, he can trade places with us. He can bear our sin and he can grant to us his righteousness so that all who call in the name of Jesus might be saved. You guys have heard me say this probably every time I preach. Is that right? I'm going to say it every time I preach. But there's, there's reason for that. I believe there's likely people here who have never actually turned in faith and repentance to Jesus. Who casually attend church, who like the people here, who think the music is good, but have never turned in faith that believe religion is good for your life in general, but it does not rescue you from God's wrath. I want you to hear today, today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Trusting in God's provision, trusting in God's purpose, and lastly, trusting in God's plan. Let me read verses 9 through 13. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan takes Jesus to the temple. He takes him to a perch of the temple. It was likely overlooking the Kidron Valley, hundreds of feet below. Have you ever been at a really high spot, and when you look over, you kind of like, you know? No way. That's not just me. You're not afraid when you know there's a cliff 100 feet away that you'll trip and fall all the way. It's like we're like not designed to like look down giant heights. Josephus said it would have been a dizzying height. You look down, you don't feel great about it. This location matters. It's where God's presence is, is the temple. It's the location of heaven on earth, where heaven and earth meet. So in, in one sense, what he's doing is bringing Jesus to where God is seemingly most present on earth. Now, that's not entirely true because God is everywhere, but culturally, and there's a theological sense in which God's presence is at the temple in a unique way. And then the devil does something else that's really interesting. Notice that Jesus has been responding to these temptations with scripture. Do you remember that? Have you noticed that? Good. One of the weapons of faith is scripture. When you're being tempted, you turn to scripture. Jesus has been doing that. And then Satan uses scripture 
Did you see that? He's like, I'm one of you. He quotes scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91. Let me read a couple of passages. He goes, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here's what's most ironic and I think hilarious about Satan's use of the scripture here. Is Satan uses these verses and the next verse in that psalm is this. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. I think this is talking about Satan here. So Satan begins to quote a passage that says that he will be trampled. I like to imagine Satan began to use these verses and then remembered, like that next verse is not so good for me. And Jesus is like, weird choice, Satan. He stops. <laughs> I think this is probably the hardest temptation to understand, at least for us. Maybe it's our time and our place, our cultural location. I do think it's difficult. I, I, I think the substance of this temptation is that Jesus trusts God for provision and generally he agrees and has, has put himself forward as following God's purpose that the cross or sacrifice or suffering is what he's called to do but Satan here is tempting Jesus to not abide by the details and the plan that God has set forward for the son to go to the cross that sounds strange but here's what I mean in John over and over again we read uh, or Jesus says, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet come. There's a timing and a place and a pattern, a sequence that God has called Jesus to. And I think what Satan is doing here is he's calling Jesus or tempting Jesus to not abide by that sequence, to not abide by those details, to do it differently than the way the Father has called him. Now, one of the reasons I think this is the Old Testament passages that I think this hails back to, and, and I think the way that Jesus responds, the passage that Jesus responds in, 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 towards uh, Satan, where he says, do not test the Lord your God, is a reference to a thing that happens in the Old Testament much later in the wilderness. They're, they're all together, Moses and Aaron and the Israelites, and God has provided for them, and it's been many years, and God tells Moses this time when they need water, go out to the rock, bring your staff, and we might expect him to say and strike the rock, but he doesn't say that. He says, just tell the rock to make water. And so this happens. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses is told, tell the rock to produce water. And Moses instead strikes the rock. And water is still produced, but God takes serious offense at Moses not obeying the details of what God has commanded him to do. I think maybe the best way to say this is this. We do not get to decide how our lives bring glory to God. Do you understand when I say that? We do not get to decide how our lives get to bring glory to God. We do not get to decide how to please God. We do not get to decide how to obey God. 
I actually think this temptation is most helpful for those of us who are relatively religious, who go to church regularly, who, who are in many senses committed believers, who, who read our Bibles and we've trusted in Jesus. But over time, the details of God's word might become less important to us because we've begun to live our Christian lives in our own initiative, in our own power, in our own design. And so we then become unconvinced of the details of God's plan in one way or another and start committing sin that is, in our minds, diminished in in one way or another. One way is to ignore various parts of the Bible and lifting up others. Some of us might care a great deal about what God has to say about the human sexual ethic, but very little about what God has to say about justice. It could be the other way around. It could be that we care a lot about what God says to do with our money and very little about what God says to help to treat our family and our, and our friends and relationships. And so we like emphasize some parts of scripture and de-emphasize others and we are really thinking which scripture strikes me as the least offensive and that's the one I'm going to obey and I'm not going to do the other ones. Another way is to rationalize scripture. Last night I said, this is primarily done in progressive churches. I actually think it's probably done in lots of churches that aren't progressive as well. That we read a text that tells us to live a certain way and we think, well, obviously, that does not apply to me today. We live in a modern world with modern problems and modern complexities. And so I have to bring my modern eyes and my modern brain and my own human reason to bear on the passage to modify it and help me understand it in this new age I live in. And so we kind of like this cottage industry of developing our own way of attempting to obey and glorify God that's an accommodation to modernity, and it shouldn't be. Does morality change over time? No. I think probably the most insidious way, and I think the way in my own life in which I'm probably most guilty is what I might call holiness negotiation. You put enough righteousness in the bank, you can take on some sin. You're good for six days. On the seventh day, you're not good. You know what I'm talking about here? This is really dangerous for religious people. Dangerous for pastors and religious leaders. I've done all this good, so a little bit of bad is okay. I mentioned all these, and I, and I want to apply them to us who are faithful believers, because I think these are the temptations that we're perhaps most, most likely to succumb to. I don't think Satan will appear to you and say, worship me, and you'll go, ooh, should I? I don't think it's going to happen. I think more likely over time we abandon the details of what God has called us to do because we've begun to live life in a way that is nominally Christian, but in its substance does not obey God or his word. Slowly over time that happens. Here's the good news. The good news is this. I think the main point of this passage is not about how we resist temptation. I think the main point of this passage is how Jesus was righteous in temptation so that when he went to the cross, he carried no sin with him. So that as the author of the Hebrews says, we have, a, we have a throne of grace to approach in the first place. We have a resource to draw on. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He used the word of God and we can use these things. We also have this high priest, this mighty counselor, this resource for us to turn to when we are tempted. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the ways that you've blessed us and provided for us. 
We thank you for the rain, Father. We also pray that there is not flooding. As we prepare our hearts to approach your table, Father, I pray that you would continue to encourage us and convict us in appropriate measures. We thank you that we're gathered today as saints. For all these things, in the name of your Son, Jesus, amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.